Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in.net. I'm Sean Kleber, your host. And with me today are your co hosts, Caleb Wells and Y Lou. Hi, guys. Hey, y'all. Hey, Sean. Hey, Y. How's it going? Oh, it's going all right. We've got a bit of snow, so I think as soon as we're done uh, recording here, I probably go out and run the snowblower around. So, uh, <laughs> and on the opposite end of things, it's <laughs> mid seventies down here, which is actually very comfortable. But I think we got a couple of tropical depressions or storms in the Gulf, so that makes it thirty-one or thirty-two, uh, right? Somewhere in there. Yeah, Seventeen so... days to go in this season as we're recording this. So. Fingers crossed. How many letters are in the Greek alphabet? Maybe not enough. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. I hope there is. I hopefully only get one or two more and they're small. So yeah. we've had enough. Thanks. 2020. Thanks. Man. I'm telling you. It's been a year. <laughs> All right. Our special guest today is Aaron Gustafson. Hello, Aaron. Hey, how's it going? Going good. Good. How are you doing? Hanging in there. I mean, as you guys say, you know, 2020 is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Right. Well, we got about. Well, we what, are we are glad to have you. Seven weeks left, so hopefully nothing. Hopefully it finishes out much better than the way it's gone so far. So yeah, yeah. Right. I have a feeling we're in for a lot of the same 2021, at least as far as the pandemic's concerned. But you know, we'll we'll get through it. Yeah. Yeah. See, you know, it's funny. My son and I, I drop him off at school every morning, and every morning in the car, we both say that today is going to be the best day ever. Because it's always good to try to start the day off on the right note. That's a right. That's even, a great mentality. So. <laughs> well, and he's even asked. He's like, he's like, so, Dad, what if it's not the best day ever? And I'm like, well, then you know, you have tomorrow. So <laughs> <laughs> it's tomorrow. Yep. And so at the end of the day, you go, damn, we were so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the day. <laughs> Well, it's Friday for you guys, right? Right now? Yes. It's Friday the, Friday the 13th today for you, so. It is. <laughs> In it 2020, is. so. Very right. ambitious. But yeah, we, we try and end the day around the table talking about what are we most thankful for for the day? You know, what are the best things that happened to the day? It helps to kind of refocus a bit, even if it's small stuff. It's, it's helpful cool. for getting through. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever have trouble just getting into the flow? You find that your tool is great? like Visual Studio, but you could just get more out of it or get some stuff out of your way or have it give you better feedback that you would be able to get into flow easier. Well, let me tell you about Code Rush. Code Rush actually solves this problem for you. So the first thing that it does is it actually gives you a visualizer on the way that the code is set up and it actually helps you debug stuff in an intuitive way that makes it easy for you to figure out what's going on. This really helps me stay in the flow when I'm trying to write code. Another thing that it does is it has a whole bunch of navigation options that you can get used to. Now, this is something that I figured out with Emacs was something that I really got into. So when I started using Emacs, just the key bindings and, and kind of the natural flow of things made me a much, much more efficient programmer. And the quick navigation in Code Rush is awesome. You should definitely try it out. They have code analysis, so they'll pick out some of the issues maybe for complexity or diagnose some other code issues. that will point out code smells. It'll help you refactor your code. So the code analysis is another thing where I don't have to actually go in and sit down and think, okay, have I made any mistakes in this code? Because it actually highlights them. And finally, it just validates like your code coverage and all of the other things that you're trying to look at and gives you real numbers and real feedback on the quality of your coding and the quality of your tests. So go check out Code Rush. You can get it at devexpress.com slash products slash Code Rush, or just go to devchat.tv slash Code Rush and it'll send you to the right place. Once again, that's devchat.tv slash Code Rush. All right. So, Aaron, why don't you tell us about yourself, what you do and uh, how you got into development and .NET? So, let's see. Gosh, I have been working on the web since 96. I originally started off as a, a music journalist who got interested in, I had started a publication and then basically taught myself how to build a website to kind of bring that online. And then it all kind of spiraled from there. So, you know, I taught myself how to do HTML and then um, we kind of had the very, very beginnings of CSS at that point. I, you know, taught myself some Perl, taught myself, you know, kind of like all the, the early stuff and then started getting into databases because I was like, we had hundreds and hundreds of reviews that we wanted to bring online and, you know, making that all static HTML was just kind of a pain. So I was like, oh, I'm going to teach myself PHP and MySQL to do that. And so just kind of, kind of went and at this point, you know, what is this, 20, 24 years later? Here I am, and I'm still doing web stuff, and I've 
pretty much had every role that you can have in a web project from strategy all the way through to design, development, UX, you know, you name it, I've, I've done the role at one point or another. And about five years ago, I joined Microsoft and started working on trying to help people build the web better. My kind of, I don't know, shtick or drive for the last, gosh, probably since about 2002, 2003, has been really trying to make the web work for everyone and, and trying to really kind of harness the, the power of the web to reach anyone anywhere and kind of realize that that original germ of an idea that Tim Berners-Lee had all those years ago of, of really you know, creating something that, that could be universally accessible and usable by everyone. And, and so that's been, been what I've been working on for you know, the last, what, 17 years, I guess, <laughs> which is kind of wild to think about. And so I came to Microsoft kind of continuing to, to push for that, teaching people best practices, working on accessibility stuff. And then I guess about two or three years ago, finally joined the Edge project formally. And my day-to-day -day is working on a lot of progressive web app related stuff. And so I, I kind of divide my time between progressive web apps and, and kind of the standards end of things there. You know, how are we educating people on what progressive web apps are and, and best practices there? And then I also do a lot of work on diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, for Edge and for Microsoft and for the various kind of levels of the hierarchy within Microsoft that I that I am a part of. So are you actually Sounds doing like... Edge development in Edge there, or are you? Um, I'm a principal just... PM, so okay. I, I'm not doing like actually getting in there and, and doing the the C work and stuff like that. I'm I'm more on the like helping to figure out what what are the features that we should be building, how are we building them, how are we, you know, a lot of the work that I've been doing lately, especially in kind of the, the PWA area, it was taking thinking around, okay, the, we have these WinRT APIs that exist for native apps. So like UWP apps and stuff like that, that light up all of this functionality within Windows 10. Like how could we bring that to the web in a standards way and, and kind of helping to figure out what that process looks like, working on the development of those standards, writing explainers, um, helping to, to kind of inform our implementations and coordinating all of that work. Has there been a big shift since you guys you guys moved to that the new edge, the Chromium? The Chromium, yeah, um, yeah. I think you know it's one of the things that's changed. You know, I don't I don't think our commitment to the web has changed or anything like that. If if anything, the move to Chromium has really been freeing for at least for me personally. I can't speak for everybody on the team and stuff, but I, I think the move to Chromium has has really freed us up from having to spend a lot of time working on Compat and trying to make sure that we had compatibility with Chrome um, and to a lesser extent, Firefox, Safari, et cetera, in order to meet the needs of developers. And now we can actually focus on like, what does the web, like what should the web look like? What does the web platform need? How can we make that better? How can we make it more secure? How can we improve the privacy experience? And that's that's really been very freeing to me to be able to focus on the future as opposed to trying to like backfill the past. So that's been, I think, a really good shift for us. So the the term progressive web app, right? You hear it a lot these days, but has its beginnings or, or its extension of progressive enhancement, which I understand you're you're a big advocate of. Can you tell us, you know, kind of what progressive enhancement is and, and how, how it's evolved? Sure. So progressive enhancement as a term was originally coined in 2003 by a fellow named Steve Champion, who was one of the founding members of the Web Standards Project. And he talked about that initially at South by Southwest as this new way of approaching building the web. So if you think back to the, the time period that that was, we were building a lot of things using proprietary technologies, be it Flash, you know, Director, you know, all, all of these sorts of things. There were even some Java applets still hanging around at the time. And as an industry, we were very focused on building for the latest and greatest browsers with the latest plugins with you know all these bells and whistles and in many of those instances because it's the, it's the constant tension of building for the web is like you you have this ideal of what it is that you're you're trying to build and you end up spending a lot of time doing that and you don't spend a lot of time testing right like you spend all this time building and not enough, not enough time testing and there's never enough time to test and so like older browsers ended up getting short shrift, right? Like they they ended up not having great experiences. This is when people started actually putting up roadblock pages saying like, 
effectively, you must be this high to ride, right? Like you're not in the right browser. I'm sorry, you have to download something different. You know, ignoring the fact that somebody may not be able to update that browser, right? Or, or may not be able to change their operating system, you know, for, for whatever reason. And there are a lot of, lot of reasons that we could get into for that. But so what Steve did is basically like turn that idea, which was the, the sort of graceful degradation idea of like you build something that works for the latest and greatest browsers and then you like fix what you can in older browsers to not have a broken experience and sometimes the you know the quote unquote fixing meant putting up a roadblock that says you can't use this because it will break because you're not throwing an error <laughs> you're preventing it from throwing an error but it's really not helpful for the user who needs access to their bank account right so what Steve did is he said, okay, you know, graceful degradation is it's it's a valid approach, but what if we flipped it on its head and we said, okay, let's start from something that works for anyone that is universally usable, and we we ground it in a foundation of HTTP and HTML, and then realize or recognize that CSS is an enhancement, JavaScript is an enhancement, all of these things make the experience undoubtedly better, but they should not be technical requirements for being able to use a site. Like you should be able to log into your bank account and check your balance, transfer money, like all of the key features you need to be able to do on that bank account or on that bank site, you should be able to do those no matter what happens, right? Because that's the key purpose of that. If if you can't do that, it that piece of software is a failure. <laughs> like, let's be honest, it's a failure. And so progressive enhancement is like, how can we make that experience better using all of these technologies, but doing so in a way that's additive as opposed to subtractive. And so in many ways, like progressive enhancement and, and graceful degradation are, are tied together. Progressive enhancement is a form of graceful degradation because all progressively enhanced interfaces will gracefully degrade, but not all graceful degradation is progressive enhancement, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, an analogy I like to use is that I'm a big fan of peanut M&Ms. So I'm like, okay, the, the peanut is kind of like your, your nugget that can, can work for anyone who doesn't have a peanut allergy, right? It's a, it's a good snack. And then you wrap it in chocolate, it gets even better. That's maybe your, your CSS layer. And then you get that hard candy shell on there and it just turns it into this amazing experience. And that's the JavaScript, right? And there are a lot more layers than that. And I've, I've heard other people talk about like the web standards trifle and, and stuff like that as like other ways of looking at kind of layered experiences. But yeah, it's all, all about building something that's going to be resilient, that's going to work for anyone, regardless of what their situation is. And I think it's been, you know, having worked on the web as long as I have, I've seen a lot of cycles over the years where, you know, when I was starting out, you know, we were on, a lot of people were still on dial-up and, you know, we were having to, you know, compress images for being displayed in 640 by 480 and, and over like 288 modems and stuff like that. And a lot of that kind of got swept under the rug as the web was growing and, and desktop browsers were becoming faster and screens were bigger and, and, you know, people had faster connections, but then mobile came along and, Hey, you know what? We got to go back to all that stuff again. Like, so there's all these cycles that repeat. And I think it's really easy for a lot of us that work in the, the tech industry to look around and see all the people around us who have the latest and greatest devices, the shiny devices, the fast devices, the you know high bandwidth networks, low latency, all of that sort of stuff, and think that that's the reality for everybody when the, in, in truth, that is not equally distributed at all. And you know even if in, in the States where, I, where I'm based, if you were to go you know, into the middle of the country, there are a lot of people who do not have broadband at home or for whom it's prohibitively expensive and who are on their mobile device as their primary device. And their mobile device like is not as nice as your mobile device. Like their, their mobile device is more akin to the mobile device that you had five years ago or six years ago, right? And so I think we make a lot of assumptions about what the end user experience could be instead of thinking about the harsh realities of the web and, and what it actually is. I always remember Douglas Crockford had a, a quote that something, something akin to like the web is the most hostile environment for software ever imagined because like we don't control the execution environment, right? Like we have zero control over what browser somebody uses, the quality of network they're on, the chipset that they have, the quality of the monitor that they have, you know, all, all of those sorts of things, plugins that they're using. So you know, the sooner we recognize that we have very little control, the the more resilient we'll we'll gravitate towards. You know, building products that are more resilient. Basically, it's you know, I'm going to admit, with even within the last two years, my boss came in and said, "Okay, we're not supporting anything below IE10," and everyone in the room was like, "Yes," <laughs> right? Because I think a lot of developers are much more comfortable with graceful degradation than they are progressive enhancement. How do you feel about older versions of IE in general? 
you know, especially ones, you know, nine, eight, seven, six. Yeah. So I'm going to start by taking it back a little bit to, so I, I work on a publication called A List Apart, which has been around for a really long time. It's a, a magazine for people who make websites. It's and, a great one. Thank you. Yeah. So back in the days of Netscape 4, so this is a long, long time ago, we decided in a redesign to no longer deliver CSS to Netscape 4. And what we found is that our Netscape 4 numbers went up. And that may seem kind of weird, right? Like all right. of a sudden they're not getting a great experience, but you know what? They were getting an experience that worked better because there, there weren't all of these like hacky CSS things going on. And we didn't do anything special for them. In fact, all we did was strip away things for them. And so, you know, when I, when I hear people say, you know, we're not going to support this browser, we're not going to support that browser. My feeling is like, I feel... I feel like we need to draw a distinction between support and optimization. And this is a, a distinction that Brad Frost uh, drew a couple of years ago in a, a blog post that he wrote. And I totally get not optimizing and not spending, you know, not investing a lot of time in IE10, IE9, IE8, and so on and so forth. Even older versions of Chrome and older versions of Firefox and stuff like that too. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't support them if they happen to come to our site, I still feel strongly that your key tasks that users are coming to your site to accomplish should be able to be done no matter what. Because let's, you know, if, if you if you kind of peel back that onion of, of what the person is saying about like, we're not gonna support IE10, what they mean is, you know, we're not going to test our JavaScript there, right? Is, is what I'm guessing. You know, we're not gonna test our CSS there. Well, right. interestingly enough, like, there are conditional comments, for instance, in the IE space that you can use to deliver specific content to a given browser, but also use to remove content from a specific browser. So you can, you can actually hide your JavaScript from older browsers. And if there's still like a, a standard like form submission process and like backend to respond to that for your like Ajaxified things that you want to write in a, in a modern way, that will still work on those older browsers. Like you could strip away all the CSS, all of the JavaScript and just have it be, you know, a very, very bare bones experience and it will still continue to work and you're not cutting off those potential users and giving them a poor experience or telling them, you know, I'm sorry, you can't, you can't use this anymore because you don't have the right browser, which makes users feel crappy because in many cases, they may not even know what a browser is. Like, let's be honest. There are people who, you know, for ages thought that the internet was the, the blue E, right? So, like, I think cutting off that potential market is a mistake. And I think there's, there's another piece to it as well, which is, you know, because we don't control the execution environment, things can happen. So if you've gone all in on a client-side framework, like things can happen because that's running on the client side that caused that entire experience to fall apart. It's, it becomes very fragile. One significant JavaScript error will cause all of your JavaScript to stop running, right? And that, that can be as simple as like somebody used let instead of var. And now any, any browsers that don't understand ES6 will totally fail to run any of the JavaScript before or after that let statement. So, you know, if we, if we recognize that, that this stuff is fragile, we want to have fallbacks for it. And so, you know, I, I, I think back to, I, th I think part of the reason that I've become such a big fan of progressive enhancement is that like I've, I've had so many bad experiences with things of mind breaking. So like I've, I've been in the trenches and I've, I've had things where like I'm working on a client site and for some reason on this one specific version of IE on this one specific build of Windows server that is like had its own specific IE version, like this wasn't working. And I was just like, racking my head against the, the wall, trying to figure out like what exactly is the cause of this. And it turned out to be a plugin that they had in the browser. And I had no way of replicating that. Like I, I had to physically go and see, oh, you've got this browser helper that is manipulating the markup on the page. And that therefore is removing the things or, or adjusting the things that I was looking for in my JavaScript in order to be able to do X, Y, or Z. And that's why it's not working. And so like I've, I've had those failures and I've learned to really harden my code to, to be able to make it so that that stuff doesn't happen. I mean, I, I kind of think to, um, I don't know if any of you are, are fans of Demolition Derby 
but I think it's the 1964 Chrysler Imperial was actually banned from the demolition derby because it's practically indestructible. Um, and to me, like, that's how we should be building websites. Like, we should be building websites that can take absolutely any amount of punishment that you could throw at it, like the, the most hostile environment, like network going down in the middle of loading the page, like all this sort of stuff, and like, continue working. I mean, I just think about like, your JavaScript isn't running until all of it's been downloaded and parsed and executed. So you end up with, you know, potentially if there's like a slow network, high latency network, mobile network that drops in the middle, all that sort of stuff. Like there's a lot of time that your page is totally not interactable. So and like chaos a, engineering a for the browser. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think about like, isn't it Netflix that has Chaos Monkey is like one of their yep. tools that goes mm -hmm. around and just randomly unplugs servers. Like, I, I want that same sort of testing in the browser of like, you know, do as many things as you can to potentially mess this up and let's see if the site still works. But so that's why I'm, I'm like so adamant about building something that will work using those standard conventions of like form submissions and stuff like that. And yeah, you can make that experience so much better with JavaScript and even more accessible with JavaScript in some instances. But to have that fallback that just in case, like, then it's going to work for everybody. And so kind of back to your question about supporting these older browsers, what I, I started to do in my client services work prior to coming to Microsoft is that we stopped. So we, we bifurcated our, our CSS such that we had one style sheet that was a mobile style sheet. And that was super minimal, like font, like basic font structures and colors and, and spacing and stuff like that aimed at a single column view. And, and we had that style sheet that was included. And then we had a second style sheet that was like our advanced style sheet that included all of the layout related stuff and the media queries and all of that sort of bucket of things. And what we did is we actually, in, we, we had links to the, both of those uh, CSS files, but the link to the advanced CSS file, we had the media type of only screen. And so that only keyword, which is part of the media query spec, made any browser that didn't understand media queries ignore that second CSS file entirely. So, you know, for older versions of IE that didn't understand media queries, they just got the mobile layout and that was fine. We knew it worked, right? And then we would use things like conditional comments to hide JavaScript from older versions of IE. We would also use feature detection in JavaScript to basically gatekeep either specific functions or potentially the, the lazy loading of additional files. You know, all of that sort of stuff just to be smarter about how we are using our resources and always defaulting to the most lightweight experience first and then building up and, and enhancing that experience as we know we've got the, the capability to do so. So that we're kind of, you know, rising rising to meet the the capabilities of our users, thinking of it as a, an additive process as opposed to a subtractive one. So what are some basic steps that developers can use to make their applications, you know, better? Do you think they should go as far as, you know, disabling JavaScript and CSS and see what their website works and start from there and then build up or how should yeah, you go? Yeah, I mean, I, I think more people should be testing like without JavaScript, what's the, what's the experience here? I did some work with a company a few years back and they were working on building out a pattern library, which I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of building pattern libraries or design systems, however you want to refer to them, but building out your components and, and each of their components, they actually, so into their, their like design system management tool that they were using, which was, I think they, they basically picked up pattern lab, which is a, an open source tool. And they kind of added on to that, but they, they created a dropdown that allowed them to basically view their design system in five different states. There was kind of like the ideal state that has like all the CSS, all the JavaScript. Then there was the like basic CSS and advanced CSS. And then there was basic JavaScript, advanced JavaScript. And, and you could do different permutations of those in order to basically battle test each of the individual components and see how they, they function. And I think if you are taking that approach of building out a pattern library or a design system and componentizing things, you really do have the opportunity to explore what that experience looks like. And I have an approach that, that I like to use for it that I call uh, interface experience maps, where you are actually using just a flow chart to kind of map out like, okay, here's, here's the different potential ways that this component could be experienced. So here's, here's kind of from load, is there JavaScript or no JavaScript? And if there is JavaScript, like, 
we do this. And if there's this other thing, like if the screen is this wide, we do this and, you know, kind of all of these different permutations. And what I really like about using a flowchart to basically kind of map that stuff out is it's something that anybody can be involved with from like the product owners to the UX folks, to the designers, the developers, everybody can contribute to that document. And then it becomes kind of a, a source of truth for the designers in terms of what are the different permutations that I need to have covered in terms of design coverage. For developers, they know exactly where the deltas are for the experience of what the end experiences should be. For QA, they can actually come back and say, okay, this is the expectation for how this component is going to function in all of these different scenarios. And I can check and see if each of those scenarios are met. And so that that's really helpful for kind of getting to understand how this stuff can work in all of these different permutations of, of how the web can be experienced. So what about like spa frameworks these days, like Angular, React, and Vue? Yeah, yeah, and turning like. the turning the JavaScript off or something like that. You know, it's, yeah, you know, I don't even know where you start. Like, screen, oh. basically. <laughs> well, so there there are ways to achieve this approach using them. A lot of times, you need to be running the framework on the client side and the server side, um, so that can be done through Node, certainly. I know React, there are a couple of different sort of what I think it get, gets termed like pre-rendering um, and then, mm-hmm. you know, hydration that takes place on the, the server side or on the client side rather. So there's there's sort of that aspect of things. There's um, some companies like Airbnb put out their approach a number of years ago now, which they called isometric JavaScript, where they were executing the, the same code on the client and the server side. And what that, what that helped them a lot with was performance because the all of the code that was needed to actually interact with a page on Airbnb was being delivered initially, and you didn't have to wait for this, you know, large framework to boot up and to make the page live. But what they what they would do is they would send the the HTML, the CSS, and the JavaScript that would that would make it run and and enable the the page to work, and then the framework would boot up on top of it and then take over and turn it into the the SBA experience, but if something happened and for some reason that that single page app could not be delivered, then they ha- still had that fallback. All of the links still worked and just took you took you to another server-side render page. So a lot of these frameworks do have server-side rendering capabilities, whether that's native to the platform or whether that's something that, that a third party has created. But it helps a lot with SEO. It helps a lot with performance. It helps a lot with just building resiliency into the system. And then I, I'm not super deep in the Rails community anymore, but I know they've moved to an architecture where they're actually using, doing server-side rendering, but then they're, they've taken it a step further and they're actually using WebSockets to deliver updates to specific components in the page. So it kind of ends up functioning like a single page app, but it's actually taking advantage of server-side rendering and WebSockets in order to update the interface, but you can still end up with that first full render working no matter what, and you still have that kind of server-side fallback approach as well. So you kind of have the best of both worlds. So it is possible to do. And I would say, you know, it's, it is initially a little bit of, of, you know, something that you need to wrap your mind around as a developer, but that the more that you work in kind of this, this philosophy, the easier and easier it becomes. And, and, you know, in, in our practice, you know, prior to me coming to Microsoft and our company, this became the way that we worked. And so it, it didn't add any extra time to our to our building. It was just kind of part and parcel of what we did. And I, I can kind of illustrate the expense of this with two two different projects that I worked on. So I had had one that was a, a Chrome app back when Chrome apps first hit the scene. And we built it specifically for Chrome using the, the latest and greatest quote unquote HTML5, which meant CSS3 and JavaScript APIs and stuff like that. And we were doing a lot of CSS animations and transitions, but we were only told that we had to support Chrome. And even even then, Chrome wasn't actually where it needed to be to support all the stuff they wanted us to do. So they were like, look at what Safari is doing because we're still using WebKit. And so like what's in Safari will be in Chrome eventually. So we were building all of that and we built out the the Chrome app that they they had wanted with all of the like we had like it was like a card game so we had a lot of card flips and a lot of like laying out cards on a on a table and stuff like that but we built it out for just those browsers we were using web sql for data storage on the client side the whole thing was client side driven we were told explicitly don't build this following progressive enhancement now after we launched it they came back to us and were like 
hey, you know, we'd like to roll this out to IE9 and Firefox, which I think of course. was Firefox 4 at that point, maybe. And so there was there was the fact that like the CSS animations and transition stuff really wasn't there in IE. And neither IE nor Firefox were supporting Web SQL. And in fact, that you know, that spec ended up being abandoned and, and replaced with IndexedDB, but nobody had an IndexedDB implementation at the time. So we had to go kind of back to the, the drawing board and figure out like, how do we add these two new browsers? <laughs> two new browsers. And we ended up budgeting about 40% of the original budget just to add these two new browsers. And I think it ended up actually being a little bit more than that because, because of like the web SQL, I ended up having to write a, a web SQL wrapper basically around local storage in order to achieve roughly the same experience of being able to have a data store. That's so it, was a, it was a considerable, yeah, it was a considerable amount of work, but contrast that with another project that we did where we were actually brought in to reimagine the login flow for a financial services app as a web experience. So they, they at the time had an iPhone app, an iPad app, and an Android app that was just kind of generic Android, mainly focused on, on phones. And so they, they wanted to unify the experience because they were trying to roll out new security features. We were hired by the security team. They wanted to roll out new security features for login. And in order to do that, they had to basically update their web service and then update the code and the UI for each of those bespoke apps. And then like go through the testing process, go submit them back to the store, go through the approval process in the store, which took time with each of those stores. And then pray to God that people would actually download the new version because this wasn't when auto updates were a thing in app stores. So they wanted to reimagine that as a web-based flow. So they would, you know, bring up a web view and basically launch the login experience. And then we would you know, get them through the login experience and then hand them off. So they brought us on board to do that. And so we, we followed through just doing responsive design, doing progressive enhancement, all of that sort of stuff, because that's how we build things. Even though we were only targeting these three specific platforms and we built them a pattern library and helped them to be able to use that to basically build out the 125 plus screens that they needed to, to support in this login flow. And so got them through that process. They came back to us six or nine months later and were like, this has been great. You know, we've been able to roll it out. It's awesome. It's working just the way, you know, we wanted it to. We want to roll this out to our MDOT site now. And here's a list of 1,400 user agent strings that access the login screen over a two-day period. And this is like the wild west of user agents for their mobile site. Like we're talking BlackBerry 4, BlackBerry 5, OpenWave, like just all this stuff, very much the long tail of the mobile web. And so they're like, you know, what would it take to do this? And so I had to, I ended up writing a, a script to kind of parse all of that into something that was actually measurable. And so I was able to basically take those 1400 user agents and aggregate them in, in like groups and got it down to, I think, 27 devices that covered like 93% of the spectrum, or maybe it was 23 devices and 97% of the spectrum. But anyway, a, a good chunk of it by like a manageable number of devices that we could actually like purchase and test on so that we were testing on real world devices. And then the other stuff we were figuring like, okay, if if we're able to work on all of these devices that we're getting and we can cover you know, this big chunk of the spectrum, we should be able to take care of these other ones that we can only emulate or we can't even find emulators for or devices for. We'll just cross our fingers and hope that we've covered them. But if anything comes up and, and we become aware of it, we'll address it. So we gave them an estimate of 30% of the project to do those 1400 user agents. Okay, and, and most of these did not support HTML5, which is what we were doing HTML5, we were doing HTML5 form validation, all of that sort of stuff. And we ended up coming in at half time and half budget because progressive enhancement just worked. And they had never had a project before that came in under budget, certainly not that far under budget. They had no idea what to do. They had no process for taking money back because they'd prepaid us for the, the work. <laughs> um, and so like everybody ended up coming away looking amazing from that. And, and eventually our code made it onto their desktop site and, and stuff like that, which was great. It was a huge win. But I think that shows that like progressive enhancement as a philosophy allows you to achieve so much more with very little effort if you actually just think about how you're building something before you build it and you don't make assumptions about what the end user has in terms of technology and you don't kind of put those technical roadblocks in there. 
Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun and having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and you use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresin.net.com slash Raygun. You, you've mentioned pattern libraries a couple of times. And I'm curious of your opinion on, for instance, open source UI frameworks for like Angular, right? Mm -hmm. There's a number of big ones out there. And, and for the most part, they're plug and play and you can do advanced drop downs and all kinds of different stuff. But accessibility tends to be at the bottom of their priority list. Do you actually suggest writing your own components, basically building up your own library and, and spending the time up front to do that so that you can have the progressive enhancement? I'm going to give you sort of a non-answer in that it depends. <laughs> I think it depends on the, gotcha. the project that you're working on, right? Yeah. I, I think what I would probably look at first is like, what are we trying to achieve, right? What are, what are our goals for this project? What do we absolutely need to have in here? And then, you know, of the UI frameworks that are out there, or, you know, honestly, even the technical stacks that are out there, what is most appropriate for what it is that we're trying to do? Because, you know, let's be honest, there, every language, every framework has some things that it's really good at and some things it struggles to do. And if if you're not clear about what those strengths and weaknesses are, you can spend a lot of time pushing, like trying to get something to work for something that it was never really meant to do. And that can end up being wasted effort. You know, the, the number of projects that I've seen where people have gone down that path and then ended up having to change the tech stack because it ended up causing them, them issues or just became too much of a headache. Uh, yeah, there's way too many of those stories. So anyway, I would say, you know, once, you, once you've made that evaluation and you found something, you know, if there is something that that aligns, let's say, 80% with what it is that you're trying to do and, and you're pretty confident this makes sense, if it's an open source framework and it's not up to snuff from an accessibility standpoint, invest your time and energy in improving those components because everybody's going to benefit from that. You know, work on work on PRs that are specific to that component and specifically around improving the accessibility of that component. And there's lots of, you know, there's lots of automated testing tools and there's lots of, you know, kind of testing frameworks that you can use to see how accessible a component is, you know, manual tests that you can run and stuff like that. I, I really like Accessibility Insights, which is built on top of Axe, but it also walks you through how to conduct an accessibility audit manually and can even produce like documentation for you to, to share with the team and stuff like that. But doing that and then contributing back to those open source frameworks in order to kind of pick up the slack on that accessibility stuff would be the way that I would personally go. If you do, if you do find something that aligns, I think otherwise, you know, you, depending on the size of the project, you know, if you end up building out something new like what? It, what does the maintenance of that look like? You know, how how does that work over time? Are there going to be challenges with keeping that fresh and and keeping that accessible? Because basically, you own it at that point, and you don't have, you know, other people who are contributing to that. And if there's not, if there's not strong buy-in for the creation and then the maintenance of that, then I don't I don't necessarily think that's a good idea unless there's absolutely nothing out there that that aligns with what it is that you're trying to do. But I think in many cases, you can find something that can do most of the stuff that you want. You get rid of the stuff or ignore the stuff or remove the stuff that you don't need. And then you add in the stuff that you do need and you know potentially contribute that back to the project in order to improve it. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So we've talked a, little, a lot about you know technical 
enhancements and, and accessibility and things like that. But there's also, you know, the other aspect about, you know, the people that are using it. You know, a lot of people out there with disabilities that, you know, sight impaired or colorblind or just physical impairments that affect their ability to use the web. What's the best approaches to, you know, solve those problems? I mean, getting to know people who are different than you, like surrounding yourself with people <laughs> who have who have different experiences than you is is really like key to that. I think, you know, having a diverse team with d- diverse life experiences and and such is really helpful for catching this stuff early. If you don't have a diverse team and like working on that is a is a struggle or or it's going to take you a while to get to the point that that your team is actually representative of your customers then you know doing real world testing with people who have have different disabilities is is definitely a, a recommendation i think also you know we get i feel like hung up a lot on specific disabilities that are permanent disabilities. So, you know, maybe it's somebody who is blind or somebody who has, you know, lost the use of an upper extremity or something like that. But disability is on a spectrum of like from from permanent disability to temporary disability to situational disability. So there's a piece from the the Microsoft Inclusive Design documentation that I love that actually shows, you know, I'm I'm gonna forget the total percentages of or the the numbers of people, but you know, there's a, a group of people who in the US lose the use of an upper extremity every year. Related to that are the number of people who, you know, lose temporary use of an upper extremity. Maybe they broke their dominant arm or something like that. And then there's also the people who are new parents who have to like hold a child in one arm and you know interact with something with the other arm. And if you put all of those people together, you go from totally going to mess up the original number, but I think the upper extremities is somewhere around like six or seven or 8,000 people a year in the US to 21 million people, like as you extrapolate that out. Another useful analogy is like curb cuts. Curb cuts are a relatively recent addition to like our, our built infrastructure in the world but they are not just useful for people who are in wheelchairs. They end up being useful to, you know, kids bicycling on the sidewalk, to people on skateboards, to, you know, the the UPS or FedEx delivery person who has to like do a dolly, to people who are, are pushing strollers, you know, like there's all of these other people that benefit from that that are not, you know, what we would consider disabled, right? Or or, or not dealing with a disability. There's also things like we, we think about macular degeneration and vision impairments, but then there's also similar to that, like the, those are reasons we want to have high contrast, right? Or, or not have tiny type. Those are also benefits for people who are using a mobile device in the you know bright sunlight with a lot of glare and maybe their battery is really low. So they've had to turn their, their brightness down, right? Like that's, that's another like situational impairment that, that folks are having to deal with. And the considerations that we put in there for people who are, are low vision will then help those other people too. So I think just, you know, kind of thinking more broadly about accessibility, obviously working with people with, with disabilities and making sure that they can interact with the products and accomplish the key tasks that our, our software or our product needs to do is absolutely crucial, but also starting to think of what is what is the spectrum of, of disability and how how are there other populations that will benefit from the, uh, the things that, that we're working on. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, on a business end of things, also thinking about that in terms of total addressable market. You know, there are a lot of companies that are not doing a great job with accessibility. And so they've they've effectively cut themselves off from all of these people who could be using their product. And so, you know, the more you can create a product that works for them, the more likely you are to get their business. Yeah. So I think from a business standpoint, it makes a lot of sense to to make those investments and and to to make accessibility more of a, a core priority for your organization overall. I really agree with you about the the whole like needing to actually go out and test it with real world users because I think the biggest the biggest barrier with accessibility for a lot of developers is that you can't really like kind of see it working all the time. So like like I've used things like Jaws and other types of screen readers, but even when I use it, I have no real idea like how it, how how to actually get it working. It's it's foreign to me, you know, because I don't actually have that 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 need to use it. And it's I guess it's weird because. Like everything else with UX, it's always about like trialing and testing and validating it with the users. But it just seems with accessibility, it's, it is kind of kind of this thing that you that you kind of put in the background, I guess. Or it's like a second thought. Do you recommend that if you do want to do accessibility properly, 
that you you basically need like an accessibility expert on the team? I mean, I think it it helps to either have somebody who is in that role or who is interested in growing into that role that that wants to go out there and and kind of do the work to to train themselves up on things to you know to do. You know, there's a lot of courseware available to, you know, get to understand the various um, considerations when it comes to accessibility and, and if they're out there kind of educating themselves on it. And then, you know, reaching out and developing partnerships with organizations that are in your community that are interacting with various disability communities is another great way to do things. So when when I lived in Chattanooga, Tennessee, we had a great place called Signal Centers that catered to people with with a wide variety of disabilities. And so being able to go in and experience, like just watch how people interact with computers, watch how people interact with screen readers. Like if you've never seen a blind person interact with a screen reader, it's it's kind of mind-blowing because the speed at which they're listening and how they're they're using the keyboard to navigate, and it, it can be really helpful for you to kind of experience that firsthand. And I, I don't, I don't feel like, you know, reading about it necessarily gives you that, that experience. No, I think it, certainly... it, forms a, it forms a sense of empathy, I think. So when you absolutely, it, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, let's be honest, there, there are a lot of people for whom, you know, interacting with people with disabilities feels uncomfortable to them. And we need to get past that. And like, we need to, to get past the, the discomfort and realize like, these are people, these are our customers, these are our colleagues, these are our friends. And I think that's, again, where I, where I think having a diverse team and having people with disabilities on, on your team working on in various ways, you know, in, in a bunch of different roles, just don't, you know, don't expect to have like, your, your accessibility person has to be blind or, or something like that. We, we have blind engineers and, and such at Microsoft and, and we have people with lots of different disabilities working in lots of different areas. And I think the more that you can can hire from diverse populations and, and bring those perspectives, those, those fresh perspectives into your product, the stronger your products will be overall. And the more part of your process the, the whole approach will become. And it just becomes the way that you do things and your product will be so much better for it. A lot of times there's actually uh, legal requirements for the business that you're in. Like I worked with state universities for about 20 years and there was always, I had to familiarize myself with uh, Section 508. Mm-hmm. So making sure that you have alt tags and different colors yep. and all sorts of things that you have to make sure that it's done right. So if you're one of those businesses, you you should feel familiarize yourself with with those kinds of regulations. I guess tongue tied regulations. <laughs> yep. No, totally. I I was doing at an agency that I was at prior to to starting my own. We were doing a lot of work with the state of Connecticut with various departments like the the lottery and the Department of Transportation and and such. And I remember there were a couple of sites that I launched in like the two thousand four two thousand five era that. I had made accessible, you know, at least meeting Section 508, which is kind of a, a low bar, but even even at the time, but you know, I had made them accessible, and they were really, you know, they came to us after launch. And we're like, oh my gosh, we just realized that we have to meet Section 508, or else our funding gets, you know, potentially held up or something like that. And, and we're like, no, it's cool, like it's already done. <laughs> like we, we we took care of it. We've already run the, you know, the the checks such as they were at the time, which you know, I look yeah. back and I just kind of cringe, but. Even even other projects, like we did a, a site, gosh, in 2004 for Bertucci's Restaurants, which is like pizza and pasta chain kind of up and down the East, East Coast, mostly in the Northeast. And at the time, pretty much every restaurant website was Flash. And we actually built it using web standards, doing CSS and, and HTML and such. And it was still super beautiful. And like we ended up getting you know a couple of awards for it and stuff like that, which was great. But the best best thing for us was when they actually got somebody who submitted via the contact form who was blind and they were just like, thank you. Yours is the first restaurant website that I've actually been able to use where I can read the menu and I can find what I need to find. And they were just, they were thrilled. And that to me, like, that's just amazing to like, to be all of that to, to somebody for like a restaurant website, which is, you know, many of us just kind of like, okay, yeah, it's just a restaurant website, whatever. But like, that was really important to that person that they actually be able to, to read the menu and, and to be able to locate a store and all that stuff. For them, it was huge, right? Because it's, mm-hmm. if you don't have it, right, technology yeah. is not going to benefit you if you can't use it or if it's not accessible to you. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. And they actually said to our client, they're like, you know, I wish all restaurant websites were like yours. And like, that's a huge compliment right there. 
are tools like uh, browser stack or Lambda test, are those beneficial for helping out with this type of thing? I mean, there, there are a lot of CI/CD tools that can be used to run some automated accessibility testing. So even like Axe, which underpins Accessibility Insights and Accessibility Insights itself can be run in an automated fashion. They can catch you know, a percentage, a variable percentage of issues, kind of the, the low hanging fruit, like you know, this form field doesn't have a label, you know, the contrast on this is too low, the font size on this is too small, those sorts of things. Those are the sorts of things that computers can detect right now. But a lot of the things like, you know, where do you have a focus trap? Like, you know, somebody gets, gets, you know, tabbing their mouse or tabbing their keyboard through and the cursor through and they end up in a modal and then they can't close that modal and get back to the main content. Like, that's a, a problem. Like, that can't necessarily be caught by automated testing. In a similar way, like, even if you did, like, modals are a real pain in the butt. But if you, um, if you move into a modal... Agreed. Yeah. If you move into a modal and then exit the modal purely using a keyboard, like where are you brought back to? In a lot of cases, you get brought back to the top of the page again. And that's not where you were. That's not where that wasn't, that's not the context in which you launched that modal dialogue. So like making sure that you're bringing people back to where they, they originated from, those sorts of things are just really crucial and are not really testable in an automated way at, at this point, at least not that I've seen. Um, so yes, you can have like some accessibility checks that can go through and look for look for some of the low hanging fruit. They can look for for some of your your content on the site to say things like to the right or below or you know like those sorts of things that are like visual references. They can you know alert you to things like non inclusive language and and you know that sort of things like heavy use of jargon things that can help you to improve your your writing to make it more accessible. You know, automated tools are pretty good at that stuff, but there's a lot of the interactive pieces that they're just not really great at yet. Okay, so I think we're we're getting towards the end of the, the time that we have, but is there things that we haven't covered that people should know? Gosh, let's see. I mean, I think, you know, give progressive enhancement a chance. I think it's it's really one of those things that can benefit you tremendously. And that's, you know, kind of back to the the original question from Caleb, like, you know, progressive enhancement being the the first letter of PWA of progressive web apps. The entire idea is building building something that works and then enhancing it for things like installation and discovery and re-engagement and you know, use in a store and all that sort of stuff. And that's what what progressive web apps are all about. You know, taking a, a really good user experience and a, a great website and just making it even more powerful. Right. I, I kind of think of it as like website plus plus. And you know, it's it's something that, you know, once you start thinking in this way, it really does make your developer experience a lot easier too, because you're not you're not creating so many potential points of failure. So I, I'd say, you know, definitely look into it a, a bit more. I think, you know, if you if you start to wrap your head around how it works, it can be really transformative in terms of your your practice as a developer. Yeah. And then, you know, as as I mentioned, just kind of expanding our our spheres of influence and, and kind of looking beyond the the folks who are like you and trying to to see things from other people's perspectives and that can help you, help give you an appreciation for why this stuff is so important yeah that's great that's great leveling up is important i spend at least an hour every day learning ways i can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book if you're looking to level up i recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want you can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. So I think I'm going to move us on to picks then. So Caleb, why don't you go first? If you can throw out your pick. Yeah, sounds good. So my pick is actually uh, Google Fi. My wife and I just switched two weeks ago. I had to convince her <laughs> to do it. That, that was a bit of a, a struggle. And there were some hang-ups in the initial transfer, but um, once we got it, got everything transferred over and gave it a couple of days, we're good to go. And uh, right, it's less than half what we were paying with Verizon. So, so what is it? You know, people are not familiar with it. What Google Fi is because it's not available everywhere. Oh, oh, well, actually, I think it is available most places now because they're they're piggyback off of yeah. maybe Sprint in America. Sorry. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm in that U.S. mindset. It's, it's Google's mobile network, but they do work internationally. 
you may not be able to get on it outside the U.S., but if you have it, it'll work anywhere in the world on different GSM systems for free. So, yeah, so that's my pick. All right. Go ahead. Why? So my pick this week is the audio version of World War Z. So you might have seen the movie. It's, it's basically a movie about like like a post-zombie apocalypse world kind of thing. Um, but the plot's actually totally different in the book. It's more of like a like an eyewitness account of you know various people in this new world. But yeah, the audio versions like it's really cool. It's it's almost like a like a radio drama. It's not just like some guy like reading the book. It's got like lots of like actors playing different characters and you know sound effects and things like that. So so yeah, I read it ages ago. I listened to it ages ago and yeah, really enjoyed it. It's about zombies, isn't it? Yeah, really, yeah, really fast <laughs> zombies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Brad Pitt, I think, was in the original movie. But like I said, the movie is, is, is it's almost like a completely different thing. It's really different to the book. So Cool. All right, Aaron, you got a pick for us? I'm going to exercise my uh, ability to pick two as the guest. Uh, so I'm going <laughs> to name two podcasts that have been really helping me to kind of, you know, as in, on the theme, you know, kind of breaking out of my own bubble and, and what my kind of realm of experience is. The Code Switch podcast, which is from NPR here in the States, is really amazing. Really getting to hear all kinds of stories from different communities of color, which has been really eye-opening and fantastic. And then the hashtag cause a scene podcast, which is a lot about anti-racism work and anti-blackness and how that intersects with technology. And yeah, it's it's a really challenging podcast, but definitely worth a listen. And Kim Creighton, who runs that podcast, also does a bunch of workshops that are highly valuable. Cool. Cool. So I'm going to actually uh, make a couple picks too. And, and one of them is just because this week was .NET Conf. So if people didn't uh, get to watch .NET Conf and see all the sessions and things like that, they can go to the .NET Conf website, .NETConf.net. And they also have the videos on YouTube and things like that. So definitely uh, check those out because I, I watched a lot of it and it was really great stuff. You know, things about C Sharp 9, you know, .NET 5 was released. So all that stuff, it was really, really cool. So I'm trying to learn it and pick it up and see what I can do that with my future projects. So that was awesome. My other pick is going to be actually an old game. And uh, the game is Diablo 2. And my son and I just started playing that again the uh, past couple of months. So we've gone through everything and, and replayed it. But not only is there Diablo 2, but just this past week, there was new uh, kind of a modification to it called Project Diablo 2. So if you played Diablo 2 back in the day, they now just came out with Project Diablo 2. It's not by blizzard or anything like that but you can use it to uh, update your diablo 2 install and it gives you you know like big bigger inventory it rebalances a lot of the weapons and the specials and things like that it has a ladder built into it there's new end game content so lots of stuff there so if you have diablo 2 or even if you don't have it check it out look at the videos on it i'm sure there's tons on twitch or or youtube so Check that out. It was uh, real fun with my son's 25 now. So he remembers me playing it back when it originally came out. So that's why we wanted to kind of play it together and and have some fun there. So try that out. Yeah, the nice. Diablo games are great. Yeah. Yeah, I, think, yeah, I remember playing it in the 90s. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was a big gonna, fan of being the necromancer. Lots of pets. <laughs> exactly. So I think we're going to do Diablo 3 next. And then, of course, we're, we're really looking forward to Diablo 4 when it comes out. So that'll be great. Diablo, uh, Diablo 3 seasons are fun. If you if you get in and play, you can play a season and, and it's it's good stuff. And you can level up super fast. Yeah. So yeah. Is, is it all multiplayer now? Because I remember when I was playing Diablo 2, like I had, it was back in the day where you had like a 56K modem. I had to dial my friend to have that, you know, that multiplayer <laughs> thing. Like, is there like an online, um, like a Battle.net type server where you can, where everyone can play? Yeah, it's all online, but there is a campaign mode. So, you know, I'm just doing it by myself right now to try out some of the different characters that are in Diablo 3 before I jump in and, and make a, a game with my son and myself. So, you know, yeah, I think from does... Diablo 3 on, it required an internet connection at all times, which it did not do in the second one. Right. Hello, my friend. Stay away and listen. Okay, <laughs> that's enough. Um Aaron, if people have questions or they want to reach out and get in touch with you, how can they do that? Um, I am pretty active on Twitter. I am at Aaron Gustafson there. 
You can also reach out to me on any of the GitHub projects that I'm on, which is quite a few as well. Those are probably the two best places to, to get me, though I'm on every other social media thing, Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn and stuff like that. So hit me up wherever, but I'm, I'm most, most frequently around Twitter. Great, great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I think uh, yeah. it's very beneficial to a lot of people, I think. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And if the listeners want to reach out to the show and get in touch with us, we appreciate your feedback. You can get me on Twitter and the show. I am at .NET Superhero. So dun, dun, thanks, everybody. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.